All right, everybody, we're back. It's Friday. It's the end of July. We're coming up to the big August holiday season, but we're having one last Brigadoon call. I guess for the, no, we're going to catch up in the August, but here we are, our good friend, Gerald Ashley. Gerald, how are you doing? What's happening? Uh, I'm well. I'm in a unseasonably nice and warm, or what we would call stinking hot, uh, England. Um, it's probably fairly standard for your part of the world, but we're, we're luxuriating in the in the low 80s in Fahrenheit or in new money. That's about, I don't know, 27, 28 degrees centigrade. <laughs> um, and this is, we're just on the cusp of what in England the media and the press call the silly season. And in the silly season, you normally get lots of sort of crazy stories that are invented by journalists because there's nothing going on. Now, this year, I don't think that's the case because... The outside world is inventing enough stories to keep everybody busy, but um, it's going to be difficult in the next few weeks to discern what is genuinely going on from nonsense written by journalists. So we've got to watch out for that. How are you feeling about the Lionesses? Are you do you have Euro twenty twenty two fever? Are you going to root for no. the uh, Lionesses versus no. Germany? I am of a vintage to remember nineteen sixty eight. In fact, I remember it quite vividly, but uh, the games and everything. But um, I'm going to say something, and this this may cause a bit of a storm. I may stand on a slight landmine now. Um, I actually like um, women's or ladies' football, soccer, whatever you want to call it, uh, but maybe not for the reason that I should do. And the reason I like it is I think they're not quite so skilled, and so it's actually a much more entertaining game. Uh, my fear is that they're getting more and more skilled. They're getting more and more professional there's clearly big bucks going to get involved. And I wonder if it's going to turn into just another boring version of uh, a lot of football, which a lot of the men's professional game is quite dull, I think. So it's yeah, it does seem to... It's entertaining yeah, they do seem for to, all reasons. Yeah, I agree. They do seem to play with a the pace. There's more goals scored. It's not as yeah. conservative. Um, it's exciting. What I'm interested about in women's soccer is there is a direct correlation between GDP, the power of an economy and a nation state and the success of a women's soccer team. I mean, if you look at the best women's soccer teams in the world, they're from the biggest economies in the world, unlike the men's game, which doesn't correlate. But I think that has a lot to say about, you know, opportunities, the ability to have money to spend on sports, et cetera. Um, so I'm always looking at it from a geopolitical standpoint. I think you, you may be stretching a correlation here a little bit, but nevertheless, does this mean that, um, you know, if we beat Germany on Sunday, it's always the Germans, isn't it? Um, does this mean that the UK is going to be back as a G7 powerhouse? Maybe. Certainly the, the, the Germans crown, even if they win the soccer on on Sunday, are in trouble with their economy. So we'll see if your theory works, I guess. Now, I'm sure there will be all kinds of positive acclamations from uh, certainly every politician, whatever government, whatever country wins on Sunday, but that's exciting. Yeah. All right. Let's talk to, uh, we, let's talk, let's go to the other side of the world. We're going to go to Taiwan, the Republic of China, not to be confused with the People's Republic of China. Taiwan, that little islands, as uh, some of the Chinese like to call it, they're off the mainland of China. There's rumors and speculation that Speaker Pelosi, the third ranking member of the U.S. government who heads up the House of Representatives, will be taking a congressional delegation to Taiwan as part of an Asia trip she is making. As we record this, she's about to have a press conference. Uh, she has a weekly press conference on Fridays. 
Uh, and she's due to depart today to Asia. Nobody really knows if she's going to Taiwan or not. What's the, is it a crisis? Is it uh, sabotaging? What is going on? Why does everybody suddenly care about Mrs. Pelosi and her travel schedule? Well, indeed. I mean, we normally spend a lot of time examining what her husband's share dealings are. But so now we're possibly the greatest investor uh, in the world uh, up there with Hillary Clinton and a capital futures trading record, which still <laughs> remains one of the, the most brilliant. He reads he reads a lot of newspapers. Actually, we saw we had a brunch a few weeks ago in Georgetown and we saw them for uh, having brunch. It was nice. So yeah. they look very content, very happy. So Anyways. you're obviously on the inside track of everything, Mark. Well, I did I, not get any. Uh, <laughs> I did not get any investment advice, but anyhow, you left them alone. You have to be cool around these politicians. You can't act like you know them. You got to be cool. Yeah, of course. Um, well, Taiwan. Uh, maybe the vast majority of people who are tuning in know this, but just a tiny bit of history is that, of course, the split between Taiwan and China. Uh, or mainland China, or whatever you want to call it, is is the leftover bits of the um, civil war where the communists took over in the 1940s, and that the uh, Republican, as was called, army uh, under Chiang Kai-shek, retreated effectively to uh, Taiwan or Formosa, as was in those days, and we kind of it's another one of those sort of bits of history that are frozen in the same way as we've got the. the uh, demilitarized line in North and South Korea is frozen. So you've got a, a frozen situation here. Um, it's basically, uh, you've got the rump, if you like, or small government in Taiwan saying, well, the communists uh, uh, usurpers, they're illegal, um, but they've been illegal there for 80 years and they're illegal with a lot of nuclear weapons. So the realpolitik sort of leaves it like that. And and this just seems to be one of these things where governments, particularly the United States, and obviously the main Chinese government in Beijing, occasionally clash or poke sticks at one another. Um, it's often around things like diplomatic representation or the rest of it. But the big change I sense, and I, I think most people would agree with this, is that under President Xi, China has become a much more expansionist-looking uh, uh, regime or government. So we know all about their their antics with building um, sand islands in the South China Seas and then trying to make maritime claims. But it, it clearly, Taiwan and mainland China is really one country, but they're under two different regimes. So you could say it's a frozen civil war. Um, I would have thought it's probably in everybody's best interest just to not do anything. This is a sleeping dog that doesn't need to be woken up. Um, but every now and again, China sort of makes noises that they can't tolerate it anymore. Um, where Mrs. Pelosi's uh, sort of trip fits into this, I don't know. But I would have thought it's fairly, fairly minor. I would have thought. Well, she is the the way the U.S. government works. Uh, if the president and the vice president were taken out, decapitated, the Speaker of the House who heads the House of Representatives, is the next in line. So in theory, she's the third ranking member of the U.S. government. Um, right. She would be the highest ranked U.S. government official in 25 years to visit Taiwan. So okay. that makes, you know, it's a big precedent. Now, you're spot on. China's much more aggressive. They kind of have solidified the mainland. And yeah, they have expansionists. They're looking out. You know, they're surrounded by, I think, 17 different countries. 
tons of history, et cetera. You know, if you and me were running Beijing, we would certainly be advocating to take over more territory in the South China Sea. Like I think everything, sure. everything China is doing sure. makes sense from a real politic perspective. Why yeah. this suddenly has become such a big event is actually beyond me. I mean, I don't know why China, I, I know why China is overreacting in the sense Xi Jinping has his uh, party conference in October where he'll be taking over an unprecedented third term. He doesn't want any hiccups. I think she wakes up every day and has got to placate a lot of factions, including the People's Liberation Army, including other nationalists, et cetera. So, you know, this all makes sense. What's surprising is Pelosi is done. I mean, this is like her farewell tour. She's not going to be speaker. She may actually even retire this year. There's speculation that Joe Biden may make her ambassador to Italy or ambassador to the Vatican. Um, This is like her farewell tour. You know, she's from San Francisco. There are a lot of Chinese nationals in that part of the world. Uh, Of course, she's been critical of China. You know, for me, China's diplomacy only has one speed. It's all wolf warrior. It's all direct. It's never had the happy warrior. I mean, why not flip the switch and say, yeah, we're happy for Nancy Pelosi to see how the one China policy works. We're happy for Pelosi to visit that, you know. Yeah. uh, But China only has one speed. And of course, the media now is rife with all kinds of analysis from former government officials, from former government officials, from current government officials, from academics, think tank fellows, nobody who's actually got any money or dollars invested in that part of the world. And it's just, it's surprising to me. It's just, it's just like step back and look at the bigger picture. So so, I think yeah. she go, I think she makes the trip. I mean, at this stage, it's not even about Pelosi. It's also about Japan, Korea, the Philippines, Australia, et cetera. And China has probably overplayed their hand. I mean, what exactly are they going to do to stop her from flying? And by the way, the U.S. government this year alone has sent $1 billion with the weapons of Taiwan. So yeah, yeah. very complicated. Yeah, I think, I, yeah, I, I, I agree with all of that. And I think they also, maybe there's the anxiety that's been voiced over the last 10 or 15 years about the so-called rise of China. And obviously, economically, you can almost mark it back to the day, I think it's 2005 or 2006, where they joined the um, the World Trade Organization and they were in as full members. And uh, uh, since then, they've had a hell of an economic run, um, which you could say has been very good, or if you take account of you as sort of, been at the expense of, of other economies. Um, so I can see Western anxiety about, you know, there's this new kid on the block who's now definitely arrived. But I think your point about presidency is well made because um, they're not that solid single um, state that they may present to the outside world, um, as is true of nearly all uh, economies and countries. And also the thought that, that strikes me is that are we actually close to peak China? Because China has got this very slow motion um, car crash, whatever phrase you want to use, of demographics. I mean, it's kind of one of these slightly jokey comments that they're going to run out of workforce or that they're going to have a declining workforce. And this seems bizarre when you look at the total size of their population. But it's very um, it's very much an inverted t- triangle with a, a large number of old people um, you know, which is, again, the throwback to the one-child policy of 20, 30 years ago. So if you're running China and if you're opportunistic or you think other people are weak, 
is now the time to do something rather than try and do it in 20 years' time? I don't know. That may be the real, the real worry. Or is it always nice to have a goal that is more aspirational than operational, right? I mean, is it always just like U.S. politicians love to have a boogeyman that love to blame external forces? It's certainly very convenient for China to blame other external foreign devils from yeah, creating yeah. havoc in their part yeah. of the world. Um, the real challenge, too, is nobody really wants conflict, right? I mean, the Chinese don't want it, the Japanese don't want it, the Koreans, I mean, Australians, the Brits, et cetera. I mean, nobody wants this. So what's the upside of creating some kind of havoc other than, to me, placating domestic audiences and both sides? I mean, supposedly, you know, Biden and Xi spent two hours yesterday talking, right? Now, let's say most of that time was wrapped up in translation. So let's say they talked for an hour. The White House releases a statement, 150 words, on a one-hour conversation, which basically said nothing. Mm. And the Chinese said, don't play with fire regarding Taiwan. The same language that they used in 2018. So, I mean, yesterday, I mean, I think when Biden and she got together, they're both like, listen, Joe, here's the here's what the crap I'm dealing with, right? I need you to help me. And Joe's like, listen, she, I got inflation. I got my own domestic problems. Like, I think there's so much domestic stuff that goes on when these guys talk. Oh, yeah. That we yeah. don't have the full story. And she, yeah. as you rightly point out, they've got a demographic challenge. Their whole, the whole story of the party is bread and circuses. Keep this party going. Keep the people yeah. entertained. Keep them fed. And that's a massive challenge. Um, and there's huge instinct. There's huge, uh, what do I want to say? Uh, there, there's huge opportunity here to not rock the boat. That is like, Germany doesn't want to deal with a new government. The British don't want. The French, I mean, everybody's kind of happy, right? Happy, quote unquote, dealing with the communists, right? Things are kind of settled. You kind of know what you're dealing with when you're dealing with China. A new regime could be even worse. I mean, if she left, who knows what's behind well, door number three? That's one of the sort of iron rules of life. If you if you are uncertain, don't rock things to make it even more uncertain. You know, yeah. we, all, we all want a, a bit of certainty in life. And so, yeah, so... Um, Let's take a flyer here and say this kind of blows over and it, it it's, um, may fill in some space and headlines in August newspapers and TV channels. But it doesn't doesn't warrant being hyped up too much, probably, I think. Do you think, do you think Pelosi goes to Taiwan, yes or no? Yes. I'm with you as well. I think she goes and... Um, there's also an interesting sidebar. The Chinese, apparently, most of these flights, whenever U.S. delegations visit Taiwan, they leave from Korea. They leave from South Korea. So right. um, I don't know. There's all kinds of uh, interesting reporting. Does, you know, does South Korea want to deal with Nancy Pelosi flying to Taiwan? Who knows? But I think she goes. I think the Chinese, once again, maybe have overplayed their hands on this. And I think the conversation yesterday with Biden and she is like, okay, let's, make, let's let her make this trip. But, oh, by the way, for the next two or three years, the U.S. is going to be pretty cool, she. So, like, yeah, yeah, let's yeah. work together. Let's move forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, by the time this is out in the airwaves, we will have either been very right or very wrong. <laughs> Unfortunately, being very wrong would be a legitimate crisis. <laughs> yes. Seriously, big time. Let's talk about another domestic crisis. Voting. Once again, uh, the U.K. They love to vote. Here we are. Yeah. Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak. Um, I've been watching this very keenly. I've been watching the debates, even the uh, the Sun debate, which was unfortunately disrupted. 
by the presenter fainting, which was pretty shocking. Um, but here we are. I don't know. To me, it looks like Liz Trust is the runaway favorite. I know we're yeah. only a few weeks into this, but she's often and running. I'm, um, I think we convinced ourselves last time, last time, and we were right, that there are three elections here. The first one was the fairly middle of the road, tinged right um, electorate of the Tory MPs. And people have fallen by the wayside, and we're down to Rishi and Liz Truss. And now, of course, as I've characterised them, we've got the elderly headbangers of the of the, of the Tory party. I mean, um, I don't know the average age, but it won't stop me from guessing. I'm sure it's well into its mid-60s. Um, though so am I, but I, I don't see myself quite that demographic. Um, but the point <laughs> is that they tend to be quite right-wing. They tend to be... Uh, very well off, professional classes, and of course they're very active politically, so they will vote quickly. So they will go for, I think, the more populist, more more right wing, more what they see as disruptive challenger, which is is definitely Liz Truss against Rishi. Rishi has also not played the ball very well. He's he he started with an almost sort of Macron esque type look. I'm clearly the obvious person to running things and then he got a bit snippy in one of the interviews and now he's done a couple of handbrake turns on on policies and he's starting to look a bit shaky i mean the real the real sort of problem with this whole saga is it it goes on until the 5th of september and i do wonder and i think you made a comment about this earlier today or yesterday whether the tory party might you know if there's a clear winner might tap the other one on, on the shoulder and say look can we kind of knock this on the head then, of course, the criticism will be there's been no democracy with voting of the membership and all the rest of it. So the whole thing's a bit messy. It's perfect for August because journalists can write all sorts of nonsense about it for the next three or four weeks uh, unless they cut it short. But I think unless there's a big shock surprise, um, it looks like there's, there's trust. And then we see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Anyways, uh, yeah, I'm really struck. Like today, Andrew Neal is going to interview Rishi Shunak. Um, like there's all these live hustings debates. Sky News is doing a debate. I mean, you're right. From a media journalistic standpoint, they're like, they're loving this. It's literally almost like Love Island. It's like real time sports television come to politics. Sure. Just covering it like a horse race. It's absolutely brilliant. I mean, the whole, no, the whole thing's mad. I mean, they've got 12. <laughs> I don't know if all. 12 debates uh, are, are televised. What sort of geeky wacko do you have to be to be <laughs> to be watching all of these 12 debates? I mean, Right here, man. Right here. I'm actually, I've gotten like a VPN access so I can hack into the BBC to watch this stuff. Well, all I can say is I think you should seek help because I, I just don't, <laughs> I don't think, you know, what in the world? And the other thing, actually, which isn't talked much about, which, of course, the press don't like, is there's not a huge amount of difference between them in policy. Um, a lot of it is about tone. There is certainly a difference on on taxation and, and maybe government spending. But and a huge range of policies, there's there's no difference between them at all. Um, now, during a, uh, a rapid-fire segment, one of these recent debates, um, I think they were in full agreement on six straight questions. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> like... Okay, and we're going to do this for four more weeks. Um, I also think it's dangerous, too, when you have – yeah, I think it's going to be very hard for the Tories to keep power, right? After 24, they'll be 12, 13, 14 years in power. Historically, it's very tough. Uh, 
you know, do you really want these two beating each other up? With but basically, they're going to start general the general election campaign as soon as they become well, prime minister. They're basically writing all the attack lines for the Labour Party right. wrote back at them in, in a couple of years' time. Um, and Sophia Starmer, who runs Labour, is is kind of doing the old Bonaparte trick of never interrupt your enemies when they're making a mistake. And so he's probably quite right to stay quiet. The problem he has is that's his default position. I don't see him being anything other than rather dull and boring in an election campaign. And so maybe, um, you know, who, who can guess where we'll be in two years' time? But I suspect if the Tories do win in two years' time, it would be by a whisker, um, which, yeah. so, you know, another whole story to come on to. But we'll see. The Private Eye magazine had this great uh their cover this week is Tory candidates offer a fresh start and they both have pictures of trust and Sunak with the air quote saying, you know, only I can sort out the mess left by the government that I was in. I mean, absolutely been brilliant. Fantastic. Uh, that's, what's been quite interesting is that they suddenly have these new plans on how to save the UK yet they were in the government. Uh, it's interesting why they didn't share these plans with Boris and help Boris. I mean, there but now a, they've got these new ideas. There is a precedent, but it's not, a strict parallel when Major took over from Mrs. Thatcher and then he won a surprise election victory in 1992 from memory. And um, you say, well, okay, he was, you know, he'd been, he'd been Chancellor very briefly, he'd been Foreign Secretary, he'd been in a number of senior positions before he took over from Mrs. Thatcher. Um, but he was able to and demonstrably show he was very different from her. And I think the difficulty for the two candidates this time is um, I think they will find it harder to shrug off the sort of Boris administration tag. So I think you're right. But Lord knows, two years' time, Lord knows where we'll be. Who knows what will happen? Maybe. Uh, and another interesting wrinkle, Mike Murphy, who is a well-known Republican strategist here in the States, um, he has a podcast with David Axelrod, who famously worked for Barack Obama. They have a podcast called Hacks on Tap. Absolutely fantastic. And on the show this week, Mike Murphy, in a wrinkle and a twist, which is quite interesting, became a member of the Conservative Party in the hopes of voting in the election. There is a, in the bylaws, apparently you can, you don't have to be a UK national. You don't have to vote in the UK, but you can join conservatives abroad and still have the right to vote in the I election. Mean, this is it's absolutely um, fantastic. This is but another the, bit, of, bit of madness, but also it, it, it um, you know, it's got an interesting thread through it. It, is, it shows that these guys, if they're this incompetent in running their own party affairs, why on earth do we allow these, you know, guys to be in control of the steering wheel of government? So none of this is adding up to a feeling of you know, steady, heavy, everything's back to normal. I mean, surely the line would be that if you take over from Boris, you say, well, look, Boris, you know, he kind of was a loose cannon. He was a shopping trolley where the wheels are in all directions at the same time. And it's all been entertaining up to a point. But, you know, we're running a government here and not a, you know, not a show in Las Vegas, as you and I would say. And <laughs> surely the the angle would has to be about steady competence, now, that takes time to build, and two years may not be long enough. And if you've got all this baggage from a previous administration around your neck, it may be too big an ask. So um, 
too early to put that 10 bucks on who wins the next UK general election. Far too early to know. No, I agree with that. And as we talked about in the last time we connected, um, I think you want to you wanted to either win the thing, right, become prime minister, or you want to finish third. I don't think you want to be second. And like, you know, that's why I was suggesting maybe Rushi bows out. I mean, if he can't catch fire in the next few weeks, it's hard to see why does he want to go through this? Does he lose political you know, capital? I, I mean, he's a young guy. He's only in his forties. Why not get out, hang out for a decade, and come back in your fifties? I mean, well, you don't have to be prime minister now. Hasn't he already, I, I can see him being lined up for a nice sinecure at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard doing the occasional lecture and then, uh, you know, I could see him dropping out the comments. And in fact, the Tory party in recent years, with the exception of Mrs. May, um, people have tended to go. Cameron went, George Osborne went. Um, they, you know, the old days are where people would stick around on the back benches and be the sort of you know, elderly sage that was still listened to. I think those days are gone. And Boris was never a big House of Commons person at the best of times, so Lord knows where he's going. And I think Rishi Sunak, um, he strikes me as somebody who may not have want the grief, to be honest. I think, I think he might find this experience a bit bruising if he doesn't win, and I wouldn't be surprised if he drops out. Now, he seems... Uh, if you, I have this two-by-two two matrix that I do... Uh, with the y-axis being p- professional, right? And then the x-axis being popular. And you, you want to be popular and professional, right? I yeah. think like Barack Obama, Tony Tony Blair, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Boris was, professional, was popular, but not professional, right? Yeah. And you kind of get that. So he seems to me, Rishi Sunak, to be like professional, very professional, but not very popular. And I'm sure he'd be a great prime minister, but... Yeah. The part of being prime minister is you actually have to win an election. You got to be somewhat popular to get through. And I think that's where he's falling short. And, you know, the thing about campaigning, it's very obvious if you're connecting with audiences, if you're making a dent, um, it's really raw. You know, it's one of the most bizarre ways to seek a job anywhere because you got to placate all these different factions. And yeah, I mean, I think Rishi doesn't seem to have it. I, 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 I yeah. Yet again, we're going to agree. But I, one observation I think is that, and this is where Boris has turned out to be particularly interesting, is that Boris has, has proven to be a cheerleader rather than a leader. I mean, he has yeah. tried to he has tried to promote himself as a leader over the coronavirus and over Ukraine, but really, at the end of the day, he's kind of a musical act. He's a he's probably one of the greatest campaigning. Uh, politicians in British history. I mean, I, I'm, I'm struggling over the last hundred years to think of anybody who got into power who was as entertaining. There were many very good speakers and orators, but they never got anywhere near power. I mean, Churchill was, um, you see, Churchill's an interesting example because he had a, a, a record of really quite a large amount of incompetence. Um, and this, of course, is heresy to say this. Um, before the Second World War. Um, and I'm not saying Boris and Churchill are the same order, but there, there, there are some very faint parallels. So anyhow, I think Boris, cheerleader and not a leader. And it reminds me, and we've all come across this, you know, when you interview the guy for the job and they're brilliant, but they can't actually do it. And, you know, <laughs> you, get, you get people who are like brilliant at interviews, um, but you wouldn't want to, you know, leave them in charge of anything. And I think that's the problem the Tories have got because they look over their shoulder and say, look, we just dropped this guy. 
he's fantastic. You know, people engage with him and he's brilliant on telly and he's funny and he's quirky and different. And then he said to himself, yeah, but he can't actually run a bath. And he didn't surround himself with people who could run things for him or he wasn't successful at doing that. So now, hence the situation we're in. So what's our, uh, I guess we're going to get together, what, in two weeks? What's the prediction? Uh, We've so far predicted Pelosi goes to Taiwan. What's the prediction? Will the Tory... Here's the question. Are you ready? Will there be two candidates for the Tory leadership, a.k.a. prime minister election, in two weeks' time? I'm going to give a political answer, which is, of course, to say that's a very, <laughs> that's a very interesting question. Um, if they had any sense, they'd drop it fast and turn it into a coronation. The problem they've got is that it may play very badly and they're even less democratic than we thought they were. Um, yeah. If I was them, I'd take the short-term grief of that criticism, have a coronation, and get a new PM in who, at least for the first two, three, four weeks, you know, the dog days of August, hopefully it will be a quiet time to sort of slide into the job and and build a new team and everything. Um, I sense, though, that this bloodletting might go on uh, to September, which I think would be a mistake. So your short answer is yes. There'll be two candidates in two weeks' time. Well, the short answer is I only want to focus on the parts of the last sentence that proved to be correct when we look at them in a few weeks' time. Yeah, okay. I I'll still connect on the line and say, I, unfortunately, I think it may run to the fifth of September. Do you say yes? I say no. Um, see how quick that was. But you were much more eloquent, much more detailed. I still yeah, I'm kind of lost in your words. That no, was no, quite no, a word salad. I love it. Yeah, I, I, I should be in politics. There you go. <laughs> All right, let's go to Ukraine, which is a bit of a, as you alluded to, it's a bit of a stag, stag a quagmire. It's not moving very quickly one way or the other. I was struck by this week, Annie Leibowitz, famed photographer, now war correspondent, was sent by Vogue magazine to do this very posh, very first rate, very Parisian photo spread of the first lady of Ukraine. Yeah, of I the war. Um, I Quite I interesting. Did. I think you've probably got a more positive view on it than me. Um, well, a couple of things about the war, and then we'll come back to that. First thing about the war is it seems to have got bogged down into this kind of almost First World War trench warfare thing. Uh, for people, the armchair generals who look more closely at this stuff than probably you and I do, there is some signs that the Russians may have got caught in a salient that could, uh, could cut off uh, a portion of their forces near Kherson, not the end of the world if you're Putin, but you know, it could trap 10 or 20,000 troops and be quite humiliating. Um, but in terms of the actual fighting, it, it seems to we've got to this point where the West will just supply enough weapons to stop the Ukrainians from losing. And then it's, you know, it may, this may drag on for a very, very long time. I thought the photo shoot was interesting, and I'm I would have been nervous if I was the advisor to Mr. Zelensky because it gives, it depends who your audience is because it could look, um, it could look a sort of almost uh, medieval monarch type, you know, despite all these little people shooting at one another, I'm still in control uh, and all the rest of it. it. I think it may well play very well in the liberal West, you know, the, uh, he's rising above it and he's not going to be shaken and all the rest of it. But it, it maybe takes the bloom off the underdog 
look at him in quite the same way. I don't know. Um, I would thought maybe a PR gift for the Russians as well, actually. Yeah, I'm, this has been like no war that I've ever been exposed to. Uh, mm. The communications has been completely fascinating, interesting. As a professional in this space, I wish I had more time to actually think about it. But it, it strikes me, everything you said is absolutely correct. Um, it's also a good use of like high-low communications, which I'm a huge believer in. Um, you can't get more elite, high-level than Vogue magazine. Sure. Um, and I think yeah, the Zelensky, Team Zelensky, Team Ukraine has got to find a way to keep this front lines. And this, this probably makes sense. I mean, in the last few weeks, we've seen Richard Branson visit there. Uh, we've, seen ben, we've seen Ben Stiller. Uh, we've seen Piers Morgan. You know, I mean, the celebrity aspect of this war has been quite interesting. And now we have a Vogue photo shoot. But um, I don't know. It's hard to see other leaders going about this. But I don't know. Maybe this is just the new environment we're in. you got to use every tool at your disposal. Think, yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think there is a risk of trivialization. So that, you know, people are being killed, having their houses blown up. Do we really worry what dress Mrs. Zelensky wore for the, for the, uh, for the photo shoot? Um, I think you are right that in a funny sort of way, the information war is, is you know, key to a lot of this. Though I think it's also a, a bit of very hard realpolitik, which is nothing to do with photo shoots or the Zelensky's or anything which is the, um, the unraveling of the West's sanctions on Russia. And in fact, yeah. is, is it in fact the other way around, where Mr. Putin is now saying, well, you know, I control the gas tap and um, I might just turn it off for a bit and see how you like that. And so I don't think that part of this war is going at all well for the West and Ukraine. Now, there's um, two articles in Fortune magazine this week. One of them is a column from Jeffrey Schoenfeld, who's a professor at Yale University, who's been at the forefront of demanding Western companies get out of Russia with making the case in a, in a research paper, in this commentary article, that the sanctions are working. You know, here's it. But he's yeah. from the get is then like, this is the only way to stop Russia. So take that with a grain of salt. And there's also a background story on how McDonald's came to the decision of leaving Russia after 30 years. I haven't read the article yet, but it goes way into depth behind the scenes. Very interesting. Um, yeah, it's it's so early to say, are these sanctions working? I mean, are any, I is sense. any of this working? I mean, you know, like, I, go ahead. I was going to say, I sense that the, the problem has turned out to be all this arbitrage where, you know, we stop supplying stuff to to Russia and then they say, we're not going to buy their goods and everything. And they just channel it all through mainly China and Brazil. And so, right. uh, and you know, the end user is often China and India, and I, or even the supplier in some cases. So this idea that we could somehow ring fence Russia and put up a, you know, a kind of big wall all the way around it and stop everything in and out is clearly not the case. And um, as I say, I think the boot is the boot is starting to be on the other foot here because what on earth is German industry going to do? Um, if there are serious natural gas shortages come October, November, December. Are, are the German government actually going to say to the German population and the rest of the EU, right, you, you know, you're gonna, you may have to have rationing of, of heating supplies because we've got to keep 
car companies going, we've got to keep this going, we've got to keep that going. So I think Mr. Schultz has got a an incredibly difficult tightrope to wander through over the next 12 months. Well, the sanctions are interesting. You know, as uh, we record this last night, you know, Macron hosted Saudi Arabia leader MBS for a dinner in Paris. So uh, from pariah state to dinner with the French president, you know, sanctions are quite interesting. Let's go to Germany. You're spot on. I think what's interesting, I saw this seven mayors in Germany sent a letter to Berlin saying, we need gas. We're against this. Uh, You rightly point out, it's not just Germany, but Austria, I think close to 80% of their natural gas supply comes from Russia. Unbelievable. What's going to happen here? This isn't your average sort of political crisis that blows over after a you know, six or eight weeks, because this is going to be around for a long time. The knock-on effect here in the UK is is quite staggering. I mean, the sort of sums of money that are being talked about that the average household is going to spend on heating their house and lighting it over uh, over the winter period is. I mean, we are in we are in in the territory where you could almost see civil disobedience. I mean, I don't see how you can quadruple people's household energy bills, which could well be the case, increase tax, uh, and then say to people, well, you're just going to have to put up with it. Um, I, you know, I think there's people, you can push people so far, or you can cajole, or you can try and get them on board and say, look, you know, we've, you remember our guest earlier in the year where Doug McWilliams said, we're all going to put on a second jumper or sweater. But right. this, is, this is kind of beyond that. And um, I think the political consequences throughout Europe, and I think the UK as well, um, could be quite immense. So we've just been talking about the UK, you know, um, political scene. That could be blown out of the water if, you know, we start getting horror stories about people can't pay bills and all the rest of it. But do you think Germany, who, like, what should we be watching? Is Germany the country to watch to sort out how the sanctions, how the natural gas situation is working? Are they at the forefront? Yeah, yeah, in a way, isn't it? The, it's almost the, the exact opposite of Brexit for anybody who can remember Brexit some 10 years ago, where the Germans played very hardball with the Greeks on saying, you know, no more money and you've got to pay off your debts and all the rest of it. Now, funnily enough, it's the other way around now. The Germans are begging and saying, look, we need gas, we need more electricity and everything. And there are all sorts of kind of oddities in this story in that the German Greens are saying, well, okay, we'll sign off on keeping a nuclear power plant open for a bit longer. But I read an article yesterday suggesting that the infrastructure from those nuclear power plants has already been um, uh, sort of disengaged and and, uh, out of service. So the practicalities of can you switch the light on and off? I mean, I think to use one of my favorite phrases, a large number of holy cows are going to be pushed through the abattoir of reality. I mean, we're going to, there's some serious reality oh. coming here. And it may mean, it may mean power cuts or power outages, as you call it. Yeah. It, it could happen. <clears throat> I'm not a big fan of reality, so that's troubling. Speaking yeah. of uh, reality uh, in Germany, any thoughts on the snap election in Italy? Which we should be watching for there. Have you done any research on that? Like, I think that election, September 25th? Yeah. Um, it's kind of an annual event, or every 18 months, as we know. And I would say for the last 
20 or so years, I've been told or we've been told that this is a time where the right really takes over. And, uh, you know, this is it now that we the whole system's rotten to the core. There's going to be a big move to a, a strong right wing government that takes over. Uh, it never quite happens because all the various right wing parties hate one another. And we have the usual squabbling and mess. And I think we just have the usual squabbling and mess. But again, it is against this background of, uh, of a lot of problems um, uh, with European and obviously the Italian economy. I mean, the Italians are big users of Russian gas. And so they're, they're in exactly the same boat. Um, I've kind of lost track of who might be the winners and losers out of all these factions. But um, I suspect a new set of faces with new promises and it will all unravel into going nowhere by Christmas. Gio Giora Maloney, I think I'm butchering her first name, uh, from the Brothers of Italy. Lovely. Is the cause to celeb right now. Absolutely what an amazing name. Has traces back to El Duce. Um, I don't know, quite an interesting, she's seen as a rising star. I don't know, maybe she's the face, the future prime minister of didn't Italy. We, didn't we have a, a lady who was raised, rising star of mayor, about, of mayor about 10 years ago? Yeah, she was from uh, yeah the Five Star Campaign. She was and, the mayor and, of Rome. I, know, I don't recall her name, but... And again, well, she was another cheerleader and not a leader. And, yeah. and there's a lot of that in Italian politics. Um, without being unduly cynical, how long is it before... Um, in the corridors of power, somebody suggests uh, another technocrat takes over. We had Draghi and we had, I'm trying to remember the guy some 10 years ago before who was parachuted in. Um, so it may be very little to do with the Italian electorate as to who, who runs things. Maybe that's Rishi Shunak's exit plan. He goes to Rome, he this runs is, Italy. This he is runs a, Italy. This, this is a quiz night game, right? Boris goes into American politics. Rishi has a go at running Italy. Um, you know, who, who knows where all this stuff went? But it, there's it, just too much talent in the UK. It needs to go global. I mean, we got to bring it back. You got to spread your power, get your talents into other systems of government. Well, we, we, we're taking a lighthearted view of this. We could take a, a slightly more serious view and say, is this a crisis of leadership in in the Western world that we 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 we've reached the end game, which started. As I've mentioned before, I always think with the Kennedy-Nixon debate, where Kennedy looked good on telly and, and Nixon sounded good on radio and Kennedy won. Now, I know there's much more to it than that. But you could say that was the start of the era of celebrity politics. And, you know, you, you look around some of the clowns who've stood um, in politics in Western Europe over the years, um, Italy, Austria, um, depending on your view, Boris in the UK, um, there have been a lot of kind of celebrity cheerleading type politicians and, and where the hell has it got us the problem is as an electorate we like it we don't want some dull bloke who's looking at spreadsheets <laughs> <laughs> what's interesting uh there's a great poll from gallup that has tracked um america this is american perspective americans trust in government it peaked in 1960 camelot kennedy it's been down to the corner yeah. down to the right since the few blips of, uh, you know, patriotism around 9-11. But, uh, yeah, trust in government is peaked since Kennedy. It's been down to the left, down to the right that, ever since. And um, it, it could be the television. Yeah, I mean, that's 60 years. And, yeah, you can say that how many 
20, early 20th century politicians would have survived the television age. You can imagine somebody like Teddy Roosevelt would have done probably very well. He was that sort of larger-than-life type character. But a large number of US presidents and certainly British prime ministers would have been woeful on television. Um, and, you know. We'll never know. How would Ruther B. Hayes appear on television? We'll never know. That's a great question. Maybe some of our viewers can send in some comments. Wrong answers only. How would Rutherford B. Hayes appear on a <laughs> Hustings debate? All right. Here we go. Our favorite segment, what we're reading and watching. Joe, do you okay. want to go first? Yeah. Um, I'm going to do the reading one first, and then I've got a sort of only a half answer on the watching one. The reading one is this one, if we can see that. It's called The Kings of Shanghai. Nice. Um, it's, a, it's a book by uh, an American journalist called Jonathan Kaufman. I'd have to look up his bio, but I think he's from a, the Wall Street Journal or maybe the, the New York Times. And it's a biography of two of the most powerful banking families in the Far East, and which is the Kadori family and the Sassoons. What makes them fascinating is they were both outsider Iraqi Jewish families who basically hmm. got involved in the early days of the British Empire in China. Um, the Sassoons have rather faded away and really never managed to keep their grip on things post-communist China. So they're, they're maybe not the big name they were. The Kadoris are still very much in business. Um, they're pretty close to the uh, Chinese Communist Party, and they've managed, maybe that's the wrong way to phrase it, let, let me phrase that slightly differently, say they've managed to live through all the various regime changes for nearly 200 years. And they're, they're still a significant force. But it's a rattling good read. It's also a very good read in terms of you want to get a feel of what Shanghai was like in the 1920s and 30s. And, Love it. And all that stuff. So there you go. The Kings of Shanghai, recommended. Perfect. Um, in, terms of, in terms of reading and watching, or on um, watching, um, I'm, I'm still in post-recovery at the Tour de France. I'm nearly as exhausted as the guys who are doing it. I mean, the last week, <laughs> the last week was even more insane than the first two weeks. Um, it, the levels of fitness and skill and everything are just off the gauges, and the TV coverage was particularly good this year. And so, as I said before, I'm looking forward to watching this documentary when it comes out, the sort of behind the scenes. And I was just thinking about behind the scenes or documentaries on sports, and I'm sure this will be on your list, is I believe there's quite a good documentary coming out about John McEnroe. And so yep. different sport, but again, I think it would be a fascinating view. And I think that's out in the autumn sometime, I think. Yeah, I think it might be in um, UK theaters now, maybe. But uh, oh, yeah, yeah that, that documentary looks great. I know it's going to arrive in the States in early September, but um, yeah, McEnroe, absolutely fantastic, quite a colorful character. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. That sounds great. Mm. So what are you reading? So I'm reading, I've been going in and out of this book. It's America in the World, The ah. History of Foreign Policy and Diplomacy, <clears throat> written by Robert Zolick, who's yes. worked in a number of administrations, and I think he was the World Bank. He's a trade, trade representative for a while as well. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. U.S. trade representative. Good on yeah. you. And um, it's chronological, but it's really little vignettes of different personalities I've been there. I'm up to uh, Theodore Roosevelt, and uh, oddly enough, I, I saved this, but it's—I uh, don't know if you can see this—but it's Northeast Asia, right? Oh Which yeah, is quite interesting for the time. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's a good reminder that you know today's crisis was also 
a crisis in the past, but quite a good book, um, really heavy read, but great historical perspective. And it's always been interesting for me as an American. I mean, we're such a, a young country. And in some ways, you know, you can make the argument based on time that we're punching above our weight. But, um, you know, we've been out and about. We've been pretty aggressive and pretty globalist and, you know, really trying to shape the world for the good and for the better or possibly the worst, depending on the your, side of the ball. I take your point that there's, it's always same problems, different century or different decade. Um, a friend of mine retired not that long ago from the British Foreign Office. And in the Foreign Office, they keep um, sort of history journals of their uh, relationships with other countries and regimes going back a couple of hundred years. And so, I don't know, let's pick on a country, I don't know, Greece or Turkey. You can go and look back through all the documentation and telegrams and <laughs> search papers and everything of Britain's relationship with Greece over 200 years. And you soon get a feel for, actually, we've been around this block before. So I think that sort of institutional memory of governments and administrations is actually very important. Interesting. Well, I think it too, it starts with our, you know, we're both fans of Tim Marshall geography, right? I mean, yeah. where you are on the world dictates a lot of policy and a lot of the way you see the world and uh, vice versa, you know, I mean, the way it's shaped and influenced how your customs, your culture, your commerce, um, knowing the maps of the world yeah. is really helpful. Yeah. I, um, I got a fun show. It's called I Love You. Wait, I Love That For You which is a show about uh, a mystical uh, kind of fake home shopping network it's with some SNL alums, a fun little comedy, office comedy. Um, yeah. Vanessa Breyer's in it, Molly Shannon. It's really funny. Um, you know, good viewing, Amazon Prime. If you're looking for a light comedy, office space, and uh, home shopping. Oh, my God. Home yeah. shopping by television. What a so, world. You can, so you can either watch shows about home shopping if you're not actually doing home shopping yourself. I know, you're right. That's quite meta, right? That's quite, uh, mm -hmm. Amazon's like, here is a show about shopping on television that you're watching by a shopping company on this television. Is, this is one of our favorite second order effects, isn't it? There you go. We've gone full circle. All right. I still haven't heard anything. Maybe they're waiting for us to do special election coverage. Aria, Italia, we're ready. I know, and there's no more we can do. I mean, we've tried. We have tried. <laughs> maybe we'll be a uh, special election correspondent. I don't know. Maybe we've got to go off and help launch Boris's speaking campaign in North America or something. <laughs> Taking up residency in Vegas. I love it. Um, all right, Gerald, good to see you, buddy. Thanks. That was a lot of fun. We'll see you in a few weeks' time. Good stuff. Talk to you soon. Take care.